And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. MotoGP 2022 continues. The Italian MotoGP race from Mugello is the theme of our chat this week, and it has given another turn to the fascinating direction of this year's championship. Pecco Bagnaia steamed to victory on the factory Ducati arguably taking the win that he should have taken 12 months ago, were it not for an off on the first lap. But those negatives have been forgotten by the Italian and the loss of 20 points last time out in Le Mans when he fell out of second place. Toby Moody here with Simon Patterson and Valentin Harunchi. We've had eight riveting races so far this year, but what we're going to talk about in this pod is Bagnaia winning at home, Ducati win at Mugello. Quattararo comes second, but makes very good championship progress. Aprilia back on the podium at Mugello for the very first time since 2000. And Marc Marquez is standing down from MotoGP short term to hopefully get his shoulder and arm fully fit with an operation in America two days after the race. So, Pecco Bagnaia was masterful at Mugello as one of his major arch-rivals, Ennio Bastianini, fell away into the gravel. Simon, you were trackside there. I know not as many people trackside, but let's just concentrate on the race. Bagnaia did exactly what he needed to do. Yeah, um, that was pretty much exactly what he needed to make amends for last year. Um, 12 months ago, he started from pole position. He led the first lap of the race. He looked like he was the man to beat. And then he crashed out. Um, and at the time, we put it down to a bit of typical Peko inconsistency, under pressure, the sort of thing that he does. And then as the year progressed and, and into the start of this year, he started to open up a little bit about what had happened um, and explained that the the moment silence in the grid for Jason DePasquier um, just before the start of the race, who tragically lost his life in Moto3 qualifying at last year's race, he, he basically admitted that it fried his head and he wasn't himself. Um, so some demons to bury today, and he very much did that. Um, he did it in style. He certainly did. He certainly did. Um, Val, what was your take on it? Um, can you imagine what was in the mind of Claudio Domenicali, the boss of Ducati Corsa? I don't know. There's... There's not that much to celebrate, if I'm being entirely honest. I mean, no, good, good win. Any MotoGP win is a good win, but Fabio really minimized the damage, and there's there's 41 points between them, and that's that's just a lot of points. Uh, I think Pecco did the absolute minimum that he had. Uh, he did what he had to do to keep his title challenge really properly rolling after the the massive setback last time out. Um, yeah, I'm. I don't think I don't think there's a lot of cause for joy within Ducati right now because and we'll get into get into this more but Fabio the Yamaha looks very vulnerable but Fabio looks bulletproof and 
I think we might be in the sort of, if you remember 2015, if you remember Jorge Lorenzo's rough start to the season and then him reeling in Valentino Rossi before everything happened, Lorenzo, he was slightly faster, but he had given Rossi a bit too much of a lead and then ultimately it came together for him in quite quite the circumstances. But that's that's basically what Pecco needs to emulate. He, I'm not sure he has to be spotless from here on out, but he, he has to be better. And this is a good first step, but it, it doesn't prove much to me just yet. And I, I don't know if it was because the crowd today was absolutely abysmal compared to the Mugello's of old. I don't know if it was the circumstances of the championship at the minute where, where Pecco is in a bit of a back foot. Um, and I don't know if it's the, the nature of the sport today that, that made it for, um, I don't want to call it possessional race because it wasn't, but it, it wasn't a knife fight either. And the end result was that, you know, I've I've been to Mugello um, often enough. I've saw two two of what I would argue are the great Ducati MotoGP victories. I saw Danilo Petrucci win on the last lap against Marc Marquez and Andrea De Vizioso, And I saw Jorge Lorenzo win his first race for Ducati and, and start a run of form that was pretty remarkable. And today felt flat compared to those. It wasn't the same response from Ducati. It wasn't the same response from the people here. It wasn't the same response in the media center. Um, it, it wasn't the same. And I, I don't quite know why that is, but... 41 points. Yeah. I think that's I think that's it, honestly. Yeah. I think that's it, yeah. Yeah, but the, the only thing he could have done today is win the bloody race. He had to win it. Uh, anything after that was not good enough. Uh, maybe there's an element of uh, emotional kind of reason for what you touched on there, Simon. It wasn't a wham-bam last corner, wow, race, a la Petrucci. It's doesn't sound as if there was much atmosphere there. So for the first time in living memory of most of the people who've been in that paddock, it's not been the same. All of a sudden, the the holiday that they go on every year, well, the hotel's a bit rubbish and the sun didn't shine, you know? It just (laughs) feels a bit like that. Um, My memories of Mugello, of course, go all the way back to mid-90s and then the pomp of Valentino. And even when it was wet, it was still full. Mm -hmm. And... Now I know why they did that marketing push on Wednesday night with all the Ducati riders lined up on the grid and Cheva Diamo Mugello, see you in Mugello. And I thought, oh dear, are they really short of ticket sales? And of course, there were only 43,500 people there on race day. Um, that's probably 40% of what they should be. Our, our records go back to 2006, and it's the lowest crowd in that period by 20,000. Okay, so there are 65,000 crowd. The smallest crowd in that time was 65,000. 2012, at the depths of Valentino's despair at Ducati, the biggest crowd is 104,000. It's, 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 it's a crying shame. I mean, you know, I, I, I saw pictures that other people sent me from the press office and the, the, the TV coverage, and... You know, I, I've got one of my favourite ever MotoGP pictures that I took from the commentary box, which is bang up, high up over the press office, looking over the grid. And the camera that I had at the time was very good with picking out colours. And it was 2006. So you've got the yellow Camel Yamaha. You've got the red Ducatis. They were a special colour that day. Gibbon was on pole. But the resonance of the colours and the people and the, the hustle and bustle is all there in a picture that I will treasure. And it just didn't feel like that today. What a crying shame. And 
and and the thing is, Toby, the, the, all the things that make Mugello special, you'll understand this, they almost made it feel sadder today. Yeah, totally. Because because instead of having like a hundred mad guys on the hills on each side of the valley revving their engines off at each other, there was like one sad, pathetic little two-stroke. Oh. And instead of having a sea of yellow smoke from the flares going into turn one, there was like one burning in the distance. And it, it actually, it made it, yeah, feel very empty and and then there was a moto e both, race both afterwards literally and rhetorically sorry and then yeah. there was a moto e race afterwards so there wasn't a a, a, a track invasion under control yeah. although <sighs> yeah although i think that might be a bit a good thing because i think the track invasion would have been a bit it would have been a bit flat as well to be honest well yeah 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 i know you, you know what i'm saying as well yeah. because you know when you got piaggio apes dolled up in in fiat yamaha colors with six girls in bikinis driving it down the home straight. Funnily enough, we didn't leave the commentary box for ten minutes. It was great. So you know, that's that's what it was like. It was it was just fantastic. Um, but hey ho, we it, it will return. Everything is cyclical and it will return. But coming back to to Ducati, you, you didn't hear any word from the management at all, Simon. Any debriefs? No, no word from them. Um, we saw some pictures in the box, but to be honest, I, I didn't even see Claudio Domenicali today, um, which is quite unusual. He's normally a very visible presence. Um, and he, I, if he was here this weekend, he was very low profile. Yeah, he was in the garage. He was right. in the garage. Um, so, yeah. Okay, well, Banyaya now, as Val touched on, is still 41 points behind the championship leader, who continues to be Fabio Quattararo on the Yamaha. Um, he finished second today with the factory Yamaha. Best race he's done in a long time. Do you agree with that, Val? Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's, like, it's really hard to compare like individual race performances and stuff like that. But I will go as far as to say that it was excellent. And it was an excellent race from an excellent rider who's been the best rider in MotoGP in 2022. As both myself and Simon agreed in the work chat right after the race, by a long, long, by a long, Absolutely. long while, by country mile. The, um, honestly... Fabio's first title was good, but if he pulls it off this season, while none of the other Yamahas are scoring anything, it'll be it'll be quite special. It'll be properly legacy building because he's he's just not making much in the way of errors. He's fighting like hell. He's he's scoring the points that he needs to be scoring every race. And I think here at Mugello, he scored more than I expected. I expected him to get like a good eight points fewer because he did not look good on Friday and he did not look good on Saturday and he got honestly kind of bailed out by the mixed conditions which which is a surprise because that's not normally something you say about Quartararo or Yamaha and you know somehow he managed to split the Red Sea of the Ducatis and yeah he didn't beat Banyaya but honestly I bet he would have taken this result not just on Friday but coming into the weekend or at any point really this was this was as close to perfect as it gets for Fabio only thing that would have made it more perfect is like a leash falling off or something, I guess. Yeah. Um, he, he described it afterwards as one of the best races of his career. Um, and I think for, for someone to say that after finishing second is quite telling. But just what Val is saying, um, you know, you, you, you just cannot stress it enough. Uh, like just looking at the numbers, like not even, um, not even, not only is he leading the championship, but Yamaha are second in the team championship or in the constructors championship 
albeit by 60 points. And they're third in the team championship and they're only 10 points off the lead in it. He has scored every one of those points solo. That's how strong... In the team championship, Morbidelli, I think, has contributed like 20 or something. Yeah, yeah, In the yeah, constructors, yeah. It's, it's all In Fabio. the constructors, it's all Fabio. You know, the guy has had, yeah, just... Uh, just an incredibly impressive year. I'm um, 18 points more, but always contributed to the, the to the team's award. You know, so he's 18 points and 141. <laughs> no, you know, the, we're, we're, if if he wins this year, it'll be a season like uh like that that 19 Marquez season where he did everything yeah. alone and they won yeah. you know most of the championships. I think again, Lorenzo contributed like the 20 points they needed to just clinch the team's mm. championship from mm. Ducati. Yeah. It was Lorenzo and Bradle, and it was like a tenth of what Marquez scored. It was, mm. yeah. yeah. And and the more the more I look at it, the more I'm becoming more and more convinced. So at the start of the year, I thought it was because we were looking at a, a Moto3, direct from Moto3 rookie, an old man and a guy with a broken knee. Um, and the more I watch time go by, the more I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced that Morbidelli and Davizioso in particular just do not know how to do what Quartararo is doing on the bike. They just can't yeah. ride like him. And the reason that they're starting to be beaten now by Darren Binder, I think, is because Binder is a fresh face who hasn't come in with preconceived notions and established riding styles. So he's able to to more fluently copy what Quartararo was doing and it's paying off. The other two just haven't got a clue. And he's younger as well, so there's half a second. Um, yeah, 20 points for Quartararo. Uh, long way to go. We know that in the championship. Uh, he did say that Friday he was nowhere. It was all about turning problems. And I, th- I, I heard about that on Friday and I thought, turning problems for a Yamaha at Mugello? Oh, this ain't going to be pretty. They had to completely kind of reset for the race on Sunday morning. But he said afterwards, the front was strong. It was planted. It was pointy. And that's all I need for my confidence. And he comes home in second place. Wow. That's, it's, it's, it's kind of, without the people falling off, the Mizano last year. Hey, uh, you know, I finished sec- the first Mizano, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. He, uh, yeah. You know, he, he finished second and was like, I shouldn't be here. But yeah, it's at the points. Oh, no, no, no. It was America, wasn't it? Sorry, America. Yeah, it was. Last year. Was anyway, you get what I'm trying to yeah. say. The the weirdest thing about uh, about like the whole Yamaha situation and and Fabio is that like somehow listening to Franco Morbidelli's post race debrief, he said that he was fairly satisfied with how his race went, which just absolutely flabbergasted and stunned me because Franco Morbidelli got beaten by Darren Binder, a rookie straight from Moto Three, who had to serve a long lap penalty during the race. And uh, But then again, you look at the fact that Andrea Docioso was like another 10 seconds or 15 seconds back and something like that, and it, it starts to make a little bit more sense. They, they do not have it. They do not understand this bike. Uh, Fabio does, and uh, I mean, there have to be questions about Morbidelli, obviously, right now, but man, Fabio, so good. He has been so, so good. And he just, he doesn't crash. I, yeah. I mentioned that like every every other podcast episode, but it's yeah. so important. Like Banyaya could win the next five races, and then if he crashes in the next two after that, then it's all for nothing. And with Fabio, that does not happen. You know, when Fabio joined MotoGP, it took until Saxon Ring, 10 races into the season, before not before he had his first DNF, before he had his first crash off a MotoGP bike, full stop. Wow. Yeah. 
That's a stat. That's a mega stat. He was so consistent back then, and that stayed with him. And to, to be honest, this is going to be if you if you remember this era of MotoGP as vividly as I do, what I'm about to say is absolutely devastating to Franco Morbidelli. But what we're listening to now, the complaints that he's rolling out, the I think I'm doing okay and everything's someone else's fault rhetoric that he's pushing, it reminds me of Maverick Vinales. It's like 1819 Vinales, you know? And and what was happening back then? Vinales and Rossi were lost. They couldn't make the bike work. And the rookie kid at the satellite team could. And I think that... that I, I must interject, though. Vinales did sound the same, but he was also 10 positions higher up in yeah. every race. Morbidelli's not in Yamaha Vinales' stratosphere right now. No. That's a, great, that's a great point, Simon. But also, it's mirrored into the Ducati 800. Only Casey could ride it. Yeah. Full stop. And, and, the, and the 1819 Honda. Wow. I don't think Yamaha have done it the way that Honda maybe did do it or Ducati maybe did it where they built a bike for the rider that they had. I think what we're seeing here is that Yamaha have put, well, the now defunct Patronus Yamaha team that lasted for three seasons and may in theory have been the greatest thing that ever happened to the sport has discovered an incredible talent out of the rough. That is the most naturally gifted Yamaha MotoGP rider that, we've ever seen maybe even more so than Jorge Lorenzo just as Casey Stoner was the third choice yeah, of Ducati yeah. rider for 2007 yeah, he jumped yeah, on the bike and he won the first yeah. race so that yeah. you know they didn't even build the bike for him because it was a new because it was a new, a new yeah. formula from 990 the year before mm-hmm. to 800 he jumped on the bike he just ragged it he won it he won 10 Grand Prix that year he won the championship by 125 points I mean it was just and Livio and Ducati were like, how did we fall into a into a ditch and come out, you know, with salmon? I have to I have to throw it in here because it's one of my favorite MotoGP stories that I've probably told it already in the podcast. But he was so low, low down in the Ducati order of riders that they wanted that they ended up paying him basically very little, but with big win bonuses and tried to renegotiate the contract after four races. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I know those numbers, but yeah, it, it yeah. was, yeah, wow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mm, but good for him. Good for him. So yeah, you're, uh, the mirror image of those of those two things uh, come out. Oh dear, oh dear. But I just think that Fabio is that, the, the non-crashing that touch wood for him and sport. Um, the non-crashing thing is just incredible. He's uh, he's very brave and he's very no, he's very mature for his years. He's got a cleverer head on him than I think a lot of people yeah. give credit for. Maybe it's his look. Maybe it's his. You know, his clothes, his hairstyle, but underneath, he's razor sharp. I think what it is, is that he looks very emotional at times, but it's almost like he can store up his emotion and then release it at the right moment, which is why you see him like screaming angry in the bike when he does something wrong, but he does it in the slowing down lap. He doesn't during a race. And I think that's, he's almost got the ability to compartmentalize his emotions and that makes him a very talented, very precise racer. And he doesn't bring it to the garage, we hope. No, never. No, he doesn't ever. Mm. No, mm. I, I, I've, I've, I'm, uh, I'm quite good friends with his crew chief Diego Gubellini, because um, we're both Star Wars nerds. Believe it or not, um, we've been messaging today about the new Obi Wan Kenobi series. 
And um, he, uh, he told me the story after Fabio won the title that once, once in Valencia at the end of 2020, he was bad tempered in the garage. And uh, basically they had words and it has never happened since. Wow. That's, that's the measure of a man. Yeah. Yeah. That's the measure of a man. And, you know, and he's a family man as well. He's not Monaco Ferrari, you know. He is a bit Monaco Ferrari, but... He is a, more than a little bit Monaco Ferrari. <laughs> yeah, all right. But the, the, the two French riders in MotoGP um, were both heading to the exact same place tonight, give or take a few kilometres, because Johan Zarco moved forward his media debrief two hours because, and I quote, the parties are better tonight in Monte Carlo than they are in Tuscany. Whereas Fabio Quadraro was heading just down the coast to Nice because it's Mother's Day in France. There you go. There you go. There you go. Uh, by the way, uh, Zarco's colour scheme for this weekend, did it remind you of a Milka chocolate bar? Now that you mention it, yeah. Yes, yeah, it absolutely. did. Yes, it did. <laughs> and it's not just for this weekend, so get used to it. Oh, really? Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. yeah. Someone also described it as a tube of toothpaste. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, the previous Pramacron was also kind of... Toothpaste yeah, toothpasty. So, yeah. <laughs> I just, I just think of the the skiing downhill championships when Milka sponsored it, and uh, I think it's great. Yeah, <laughs> not a criticism. I just, it just made me smile. I, I will say, I will say one thing for it. It really stands out on track. That's yeah, yeah. cool. It, 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 it's really punchy visually, which is fantastic for a sponsor. And it's, you know, it's a good departure. We've had a very samey Pramac livery yeah. for a bit, and now it's something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, I, and I thought that the Grassini livery, even though it was a Drudy livery, I, I actually think it didn't work. Oh, I loved it. Oh, okay then. I, I, I think it was just what they did there, I'm pretty sure, is they just took their normal bike and then said to Aldo, just, just doodle on it, scribble on it. And it was never meant to be this sort of beautiful, coordinated Aldo Drudy livery. It was, you know, it, it wasn't that, well, I'm, I'm actually, I'm pretty sure that Aldo also designs the Pramac liveries. So he was the man behind that as well. So it, it was just, it was just the, the opportunity for him to have a bit of fun and a bit of free reign, I think, for once. Did, did you see the Grassini, was it a reel or a tweet? And it had a picture of the bike, a video of the bike, normal 2022 livery. And then, and then this yellow fluorescent marker pen came into the shot <laughs> and it went pop. And there was the new livery. <laughs> That's basically what it is. It's just Aldo yeah, having a scribble. It really so, is, yeah. And, it, and it's, in, it's in the finest tradition of a lot of the, um, the... The thing it reminded me of more than anything else was some of the Valentino special helmets, which are also Aldo having a bit yeah, of a scribble. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah. So I, I like that. It's, it's, I'm glad it's not permanent, but as a it's one It's the race, Frankie liver, uh, helmet from, was it last year or whatever? Yeah, yeah. and they, that, yeah. They, they give Peace a Chance sticker yeah. that um, Frankie and Mino still wear on the top of their helmets at the minute. That That's also sort of same. And, the, and there was an yeah. element of 2001 Mugello for Valentino, which was the Hawaiian Tropic shirt yeah. thing with Nastro and Azzurro, I think, which was light and blue I think and the white. And the 99 uh, Peace and Love helmet. Yeah. As well, that was uh, yeah. uh, the Mugello, and then he did one at Aprilia, uh, at, at Emilia yeah. as well. But yeah, uh, this is all great audio content. Yeah, 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 yeah correct. Listeners. Yeah, yeah. Just, it's all on my Twitter. You know, it's all on my Twitter. Just imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. Now, so we went from Yamaha to 2001 liveries on a Nastro Zero V4 NSR Honda. That's why we don't really have a script. 
<laughs> As if you couldn't tell. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub an official partner of The Athletic. So we've talked about Francesco Bagnai. We've talked about Fabio Quattararo. Alicia Spargaro, a third in the race. Aprilia back on the podium for the first time since 2000. Jeremy McWilliams on a V-Twin 500 uh, many moons ago. That's his fifth podium from eight races he is still second in the championship. He's lost a little bit of ground to Quattararo, but he's still eight points back of the championship lead. Who's going to take Aleish first, Simon or Val? Simon. Someone made a, an excellent analogy tonight in the media centre um, that I have to share. Um, Val will completely know what I'm talking about because it's using footballing terms. Hell yeah. The year that Leicester City won the premiership. It felt like the whole season, everyone was saying, ah, but they'll mess it up soon. Ah, but they'll mess it up soon. They were winning, they were winning, they were P1 on the table, but they never messed it up. And that's what Alicia's championship campaign is starting to feel like. Yeah. It's starting to feel like you should be saying, ah, it's a brilliant. There's no way they're going to be actual championship contenders when we get into the real season. And then you realise we're we're a third of the way through the season We've been to all the traditional European tracks that decide the MotoGP champion, you know, and, and sort of the lower of the sport, as it said. And, and he's there every week. He looks fantastic. He looks strong. He looks like he can push days that no one else can push. Um, I can't remember who, but one of their rivals tonight, might have been Mir, said that the Aprilia is, is not the best bike on the grid at the minute in any one area, but across the average, it probably is because it does everything quite well. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's what they've managed to build. They've built a bike that does everything quite well. They've got a rider who does everything quite well. And we could have arguably the greatest underdog story since, I don't know, coming together this year. Cause I, 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 I can't, look back, especially in the modern era, and think of a story that would be as incredible as this championship win. Maybe Valentino in 04 when he went to Yamaha for the first time. Maybe maybe this is comparable with that. Um, but that's that's the level of... I think it's bigger than that. I think it'd be bigger. It would be bigger, yeah. Because Aleish never won a race before this no, season. No, exactly, exactly. Mm, yeah. And and it is only a matter of time until Aleish wins more than one race. He's not going to be Joan Mir. Yeah. There's, a, there's no way. Because Mir never looked as fast as Aleish is looking this year. Did did the Leicester City comparison come from Matt Burt, the Leicester City fan? It actually came from Jack Appleyard. Ah, okay. I'll so rub yeah, it off on him. another one yeah. of the Darnacoms team. Yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, 
I, I still I, I can't make sense of the Lester thing, and I can't make sense of the Aprilia thing if it does happen. <laughs> yeah, the facts are the facts. I, you know, I don't I don't think he has. That, that. probably makes it the perfect analogy. Then. Yeah, I don't I don't think he has that extra bite of pace that Fabio and Pecco have at at the peaks of their packages and at the peaks of their of their yeah. riding, which Fabio is basically channeling all the time right now, and Pecco is channeling most of the time, but then sometimes he crashes. But he just needs to hang in there with with his really well rounded bike, and he's he's clearly performing really really well. And four consecutive third place finishes is it? It's a it's a, it's both kind of a bad sign, but it's a really good sign too. So he just needs to hang in there, and he's he's having a, a really good season, yeah. Well, Alicia Spargaro, he's confirmed that he's got a new deal, staying with Aprilia for twenty three and twenty twenty four. And there's going to be two more Aprilias on the grid next year. So more data, bit of money coming in as well. So they'll make money on that. They'll be able to plough that back into the R&D for the factory squad. It had to happen. More than anything, I think what we're going to see is is the second option, a bit more cash coming in. Um, because it sounds like the bikes that they get will be... The, 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 with your NF team, whenever they switch from Yamaha, that they'll get machinery that's sort of roughly akin to what we see uh Enea Bastianini and, and Fabio Di Gentonio have at the minute. They'll get the, the right. finished package from the end of twenty twenty two, but it'll be designed in a way that it can be upgraded. So that some of the things that come in twenty three can be transferred. Um you know, which is something Ducati have done quite well. It's it's something you don't necessarily think about, but it's a matter of making sure that like the fairing brackets are in the same place so that if you get new aerodynamic package for the factory, you can just bolt it onto the old bike as well. Little, little details like that. So that's what we're going to see them have. But obviously Aprilia can charge them 2 million euros a bike for that privilege. And Yamaha will pay, or sorry, Dorna, series promoter Dorna will pay that money directly to Aprilia. So that's a big chunk of cash coming into the sponsor pot for basically giving away last year's bikes, this year's bikes next year. Um, we know this year's bike is super strong. We know that there will be a certain amount of data that can be transferred. And I think that we'll, we'll also, it, it kind of doesn't matter that the bikes aren't identical because it means that, you know, th- there's data that it doesn't matter if you're in the same bike or a different bike. It's just good to have four sets of it even if it's only things like tire pressures and temperatures or sending someone out to see what the hard tire does whenever everyone else is testing Weight the mediums. distribution. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, so um, yeah. it, it gives them a lot more flexibility, I think, in terms of development, um, especially if they end up with uh, one of the relatively large names that remain unsigned on the grid. Yeah, because ultimately, it you know having the bike be a little lower spec, it doesn't matter if the squad is as... Uh, team principal Razlan Rosali has always envisioned it which is a, a young rider team like sort of a Toro Rosso Alpha Tauri or you know Petronas Yamaha but if you do bring in a, a big established name then probably that big established name would quite like uh, the freshest package available but I don't know I mean would like say Raul Fernandez mind riding a year old Aprilia next year I mean, he, he he has a current-ish KTM, and he doesn't love that, I don't think. so. The point about the interchangeability of a 22 bike and what will be a 23 bike, who says that the 23 bike will be quicker 
a la Patronus Yamaha, and round and round the circle goes with the current kind of MotoGP technology. Sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean that the golden goose comes from an egg uh, over winter, you know. Um, uh, you know, that Patronus Yamaha thing, we will, we will talk about that for decades, decades um, of how good it was. Uh, yeah, Simon. And if they if they do want to go down the route of using that team to boost development, um, something that will please Val because he's got a bit of a soft spot is that uh, Aprilia Tesla rider Lorenzo Salvadori has thrown his hat into the ring as being quite open to the idea of being a satellite yeah, uh, Aprilia rider next season as a full-time racer, which wouldn't be the worst idea if they want to use him for development. Potentially, yeah, but I mean... He would not be my first choice. No, he wouldn't be he my would first be a choice. choice. Yeah, he. Yeah, no. yeah. Okay. Well, a brilliant on a roll. Um, uh, just brilliant. It's just brilliant. Um, elsewhere, um, not a good weekend for Mark Marquez, the former MotoGP champion. He's discovered that he needs a further operation on his arm following the accident that befell him twenty-three months ago at Hareth. He will now prepare for a fourth surgery on his right arm. He's going to fly to the United States on a Tuesday after this Mugello Grand Prix. He's therefore going to miss the Catalan Grand Prix, which is back-to-back to Mugello. He did start the Mugello race, but later admitted it was difficult to concentrate as I was thinking about the operation. Um, you too, Val and Simon, you did a very good article that's up on the website, the-race.com, and in it there are a couple of quotes that jumped out, and if I could just just say them for the listeners. Uh, quote from Mark. Only if you imitate the accent. Yeah, uh, quote from Mark. My first question was to the guys who are going to give him the operation. He asked them, are you going to believe in the op? Do you believe in the operation? Uh, he asked the doctors, and they said, yes, we fully believe My second question to the doctors was, when will I come back? And they said, if you come with this mentality, don't come to America. So it's, it's, you know, you said he'll miss Barcelona. He'll miss a lot more than Barcelona. There's sort of this, this whole weekend has had the feeling of a, like a a farewell ahead of a a fairly long journey. The the feeling is he's not going to be back for for a while. Even if the surgery is successful, which really hopefully it will be, but I think there's some even suggestions that he might not return for the rest of the season. Don't know how how strong those are, but he's he's out for a while. So I think get used to Stefan Bradl on that bike for a bit. So so just to talk through the surgery and, and what they're actually doing. Um, if you if you can imagine the the bone in Mark's arm, uh, where the bone is broken, um, it's it's healed, so it's strong again. It's it's fully healed. But the two, the, this is the bone in the upper right arm, but the the two parts of bone that broke aren't in alignment. So there's a bend. If you can imagine, instead of a healing at, at directly onto each other, one of the bones is like rotated a bit. And he explained it's twisted. It's, it, it has been twisted when it rejoined. So there's a bend in it. Oh, it's twisted. So the, the the problem that he's got at the minute is that he can't sit on the motorbike the way he wants to because his arm isn't straight. The bone in his arm has a bend in it now. It's it's a, a rotation in the, the heel. 
So he can't sit in the bike properly. He can't uh, use his arm the way he needs to to steer the bike. And then because this bone is in the wrong position, it's pushing against all the muscles. It's pushing against all the ligaments. It's pushing his shoulder out of where it should be. And the, the guy, you know, he gave the press conference on Saturday. But then on Sunday after the race, he spoke with a lot more emotion and a lot more honesty. Just in a the old style media scrum with a bunch of journalists in front of him outside the back of the truck. And um, he, he kind of admitted that he's living in constant pain. That the number one reason for this surgery maybe isn't to come back and win MotoGP races. It's to stop taking painkillers every day. Mm. So And constant physio, which can't be fun. Yeah, can't be fun now. Which is in your article, and when I read that, I was really quite shocked because he said, "I go home and I train, I do everything on two wheels, and then I'm onto painkillers." And I thought, "Oh no, you're not even thirty years old, and you're taking painkillers every day." Yeah. So, so what they're going to do next week? What what the surgery is going to be? Basically, they're going to break his arm mm. and twist the bone back so that it's in proper alignment, and then start that whole healing process over again. Sure. It's a big surgery. It was it was almost quite sad when we saw him pull up after the race in front of, of HRC and all the boys and girls there were, were just sort of clapping like, is this it? Uh, we They didn't know if he was coming back. They didn't know. And nobody does here well, and now. I think he's coming back, but it's it's it for a while. Yeah, He's coming back. I, the, the, I think the, the thing the thing we took away from, from talking to him tonight at the back of the truck is that he is coming back. But what this operation will determine is how long he comes back for and what level he comes back at. If, if he comes back at the end of this season and does, say, the last three races of the year and the arm hurts just as much and feels just as uncomfortable then we need to start worrying if we're going to see Mark Marquez again. It's a long winter. But if the operation is a success, mm. if the operation is a success and he comes back at those last three races and isn't at full physical fitness, and has still got a bit of work to do to feel natural and maybe the bike's not right and whatever, but his arm's in the right place and he feels like himself is in there somewhere, th- then we're going to see a return to Mark Marquez. Maybe not the Mark Marquez of old, but we'll see him back and sharp again. Um, so, so I think that's what the that's what we're facing now. And one of the things he said today was that um, when when the doctor phoned him, it wasn't a case of there's a bit of a you know there's a few degrees of twist in the arm, and we're not a hundred percent sure whether or not the surgery is going to fix it. It's your decision. He said the doctor said we can't believe you're able to ride a motorbike. This is so bad. You need to get here now. And Mark said that was a huge relief because that meant that they're confident that this is what the problem is. The problem is nothing else. The problem is how bad this arm is. And until they told him, he might have thought it was him rather than the arm. Exactly. 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 And the way that they figured it out, um, they took an MRI scan of the bone and then 3D printed it and sent Ooh. a 3D printed version <laughs> of it to the surgeon. Good God. Who, who then could actually hold it in his hand, basically, and see the shape of it. For me, the most revealing part of the of the mark session was that it's just so unusual to hear is that he admitted that without this surgery if i just continued like this fighting for fifth sixth seventh eighth ninth tenth basically what he said to paraphrase it a little bit is i see out my current honda contract and then i'm off 
I'm done. That's my career. Yeah. Which it's just remarkable to hear. It was uh, like that really underlines how bad it is. At the same time, it makes sense because Marquez has always insisted that he's not interested in seeing out his career as a, as a midfield rider. But it's still, it's striking. I, I genuinely, I think it was the most candid and honest I've ever heard Mark Marquez speak. He is quite a guarded person. He doesn't speak his true mind a lot. Um, you know, he told us on Thursday that he didn't know if he needed further surgery or not. And then admitted on Saturday that he, that he lied to the journalists. And I don't think he was lying today. I think that that was honest, open. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, you've spoken to him more than me. There's something about his laugh that's very genuine, and I think you can see into the soul with somebody's laugh. He 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 makes me laugh with his laugh. I, I find him quite amusing. Uh, he can be Machiavellian. They're all they all do that, sir. They're all at it, particularly at the top. You know, Valentino was no angel when it came to some words now no, and again. Oh, of course that, not. That, that that's fine. You know, I get that. But likewise. He, he, it was a relief thing today, you know, as, yeah. I, as I said a moment ago. Sometimes you think, is it me? Is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Is it in my head? Is it in my head? Oh, hang on a minute. Finally, we, got, we found a solution. It's a bit like mending a motorbike, mending a car. You think it's the wheel. You think it's the drive shaft. You think it's the gearbox. You think it's the... And I always have a thing with old cars. It's always the seventh thing that you find. And that's the reason for the problem. Um, so, yeah. Uh, oh, I, I feel quite a relief for him. Yeah, because we need to see him back one day. We we can't lose the, the the cat, as we call him, crashing three times in a corner and lifting up the front. And, and even in Jerez, he did it. But he obviously hurt a bit in Jerez at that last corner. And, and we need him back because um, there's nobody like him. No, for that for those cat reactions. I'm I'm, I'm saying it slowly because I'm trying to think, but no. There is no, there's not. So let's wish him luck. And uh, it's going to be a, a, a difficult year for the mechanics. Santi uh, Hernandez, uh, crew chief and co, that's life. They've got to get on with it. Uh, they could be working at Suzuki. So they've got to um, they've got to do what they can. And Honda need a rethink. And that's going to make a big, big difference to the development of the 2023 bike. Let's not forget that. Just, just to drive home how how much of a of a weight Mark says he uh, Mark's words has uh, have wow forgot how to speak English for a second but uh, what he said is that he dedicated this full Mugello weekend basically to development work from Honda to give them like a final farewell steer on development absolutely uh, which which was quite striking because there has always been this sort of undercurrent of of Mark going. Nobody else can be trusted to develop this bike but me. And whenever I've been away, they've turned it into some hot pile of garbage. And now I have to fix it back. <laughs> uh, paraphrasing a little bit, but you can absolutely read it between the lines. And it would be really funny if he came back healthy, hopefully. And then the bike was just like he hated it. <laughs> hated it completely. I think we might know the answer to that question. And that's no joke. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, Mark Marquez, uh, we, everybody in sport, full stop, not just motorcycle racing, we hope that you have a successful operation and a speedy recovery. 
Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. It was an all-Italian front row for the starts of the Grand Prix. Uh, De Giantonio was on the front row, Betsecchi, uh, Luca Marini as well. Uh, Marco Betsecchi, of course. Um, Betsecchi, Marini, they both had a, 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 a run at the front at the early laps. I mean, more fairy tale stuff. I did have a little bit of hope, long way to go in 23 laps, that one of them would win it. But hey, crying out loud... Marco Bezzecchi was fifth and Luca Marini was sixth. Almost like, oh yeah, okay, that's about fine. A couple of races ago, they'd be partying for a week. Someone uh, someone asked Bez afterwards, did he expect to lead the race? And he said, yeah, yeah, I absolutely expected to lead the race. I know that I, I was going to be able to. I knew that I would be able to make a, an okay start maybe and, and then lead for two corners. He led for eight laps. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> is, you know, uh, but it, it, he is I, I think there's been a bit of a suspicion for a while within the, the VR46 camp that he's the next big star coming up through the ranks there um, even when he was having a bit of a torrid time in Moto2 on a KTM that was <clears throat> not a very good motorbike um, but he he's really come into his own this year um, he's doing remarkable work uh, you know, I, I think he's probably scored more points in the Rookie of the Year Championship than all the other rookies put together at this point. Um, just, he looks like he was made to ride a MotoGP bike, not a Moto2 bike. It's been really good. And he's, he rode a really, really impressive race. Uh, as did Marini, I should say, because race pace has always been a bit of a bugbear of his. And he, he looked quite okay there today. And yeah. Digi is still learning, but that pole is already quite the highlights. And I think... Very, very pleasing. Yeah, that that was the first flash from Digi of of a bit of what's actually there. Um, you know, we, we spoke on Horeth on the Saturday about his season so far, and he had said that losing, getting food poisoning, and in Sepang at testing and losing basically all of preseason because he was on well had put him in the back foot. And then uh, he said yesterday after the poll that, that that was absolutely the case. And then the test at Horeth was the, the the thing that put them back onto the right path that he built on that at Le Mans. He went into today's race, knowing he was starting from Paul's position, but wanting to do nothing more than what he did do, really, was was run at the front for a little bit, learn lots, get a good finish. So, um, yeah, all in all, pretty pretty good weekend for uh, young Mr. DiGentonio as well. Mm-hmm. He's all right off the bike, isn't he? He's a really good kid. Very polite, very articulate. Probably the best English um, of any of the Italians in the paddock. Speaks very, very good English. And if you, um, you know, if you if you follow him on social media, he's quite passionate about animal rights and about human rights, and is not afraid to be, you know, to have, a, have an opinion on things that are important to him, which is quite refreshing, actually, in a paddock that tends to be a little bit politically neutral sometimes. Um, it's nice to see someone that's not afraid to express their own personality. And articulate's a really good word. That that really struck me the first time I, I spoke to Digia. He's, he's proper articulate. Yeah, yeah. Very, very calm and measured about how he speaks, thinks about what he's going to say. 
worth a follow. Worth a follow. Okay, then. Um, well, nobody could follow the Suzukis because, unfortunately, they didn't get to the finish. <sighs> we mustn't be negative, but it must be terrible in that garage at the moment. Uh, look, you're, you've been dealt a bad hand here, and I think maybe we've overegged the bike a little bit, or at least my co-host did, because I never believed in it, so, you know, there's that. Um, it's, you know, it's just, it's the Suzuki MotoGP program's time to go out with its head held high, hopefully securing good other MotoGP jobs for all the guys in there. Uh, season, I, I, like, they're not in the title fight. I think that's pretty obvious. They're crashing and they're not fast enough, and that's, you know, that's two strikes. And two strikes is enough in this case. But but didn't Rins have a bit of a wang with someone else? He did, yeah. Yeah, but he was 21st in the grid. He had a wang with someone else because of where he started. Yeah, didn't make Q2 um, in, in the dry, then struggled in mixed conditions. Actually, I'm not entirely sure what happened to, to Alex Rins in, in mixed conditions. But, I mean, that, that bike just never looks like the, the absolute quickest bike out there. Then... And this weekend, in in Mir's case, it looked ter- in, in Mir's hands it looked terrible. He hated his time out there this weekend. For Rins, it was yeah, it was the Nakagami collision that really wrote off any chance of recovery. But with Mir, I'm not sure he was ever going to pick up more than like a tiny handful of points. He just did not look comfortable. I, I really hope that what we're seeing at the minute is something of a hangover in the Suzuki garage from from the the news that we got after Jerez that they're pulling out um, and that that's going to dissipate in the next few weeks and, and they can at least get a bit of their mojo back because it, it just doesn't feel right in that garage. The guys aren't sounding themselves. And and yeah, I kind of hope that it all clicks together and they go out like Val says with their head held high and a few more wins and a nice end of the year. Just the one. One each, one each. Let us remind you that here we are, thick end of a month after the team were told that they were going to pull out at the end of the year, but it hasn't been confirmed officially by the team. But, like, is the desperately the negotiations are still ongoing, I presume? So the team did issue a statement that they wanted out. Yeah, but they, they, they haven't said anything beyond that. And even then, it you know, the, the way that everything was handled... You, you wouldn't blame them for being very angry with Hamamatsu. More than anyone else. More than anyone else. No one deserves to be angrier more than, than the actual guys there doing the job. The, the, uh, the, thing, with, the thing with Rins and Nakagami. Um, Nakagami comes across as a, a very polite, very respectable young man who, um, who wouldn't do a thing wrong. And he's he's brutal on track. Um, this is not the first time we've heard Nakagami get the blame for something aggressive. Um, I think in this case, he wasn't in the wrong per se. Although I understand Rins' logic. Basically, Rins pulled a block pass on him. Um, Nakagami was forced wide. The two of them rejoined looking for the same piece of tarmac. And, and Rins' theory was that in the gentlemanly etiquette of racing... If someone does block, pull a block pass on you and get in front of you, then it's kind of your responsibility to ease off the gas so that you don't collide on the exit. Um, yeah, I, I kind of understand where he's coming from, and I think it's probably his anger was probably formed in part because of the reputation that Nakagami has built up for himself as being someone that's very aggressive. I mean, honestly, hearing Rinz's initial comments, I thought he might soften up after seeing the 
the replay, but he did post the replay on Twitter, now gone, and he maintained that Nakagami had done something very wrong, which uh, Simon, I think, is a little bit more on Rinza's side. In this case, I'm a little bit more on Nakagami's side. Uh, but it just I hate the term racing incident. Like, I really do, because crashes are serious business, and if you cause somebody to crash, there should be a real long and hard look at who was, you know, who was at fault, and there should be measures to stamp out as many crashes as possible. But in this case, it's just, I can't apportion blame. I, I don't see how Nakagami is predominantly at fault for this. Or Rins, I guess. Like, just happened. I, I think a large part of Rins's anger as well was directed towards the stewards, who I'd imagine, from, from, unfortunately, from what we've heard about how they deal with other people, were probably quite dismissive of him and his complaints. Um, we're in this weird position right now where, the, the, you know, this inconsistency that we've talked about among MotoGP stewarding continues... And um, the the problem is that earlier in the day during the Moto3 race, they did penalise someone for something that, that was just as much a racing incident. Um, so it, it then infuriates riders into, you know, making statements that maybe they wouldn't in a slightly calmer mood. Um, or if, if a more modest sanction had been applied at the time. But that is the way it is and nothing we say is going to change it um as for why the video of the from the cctv footage of the track has been deleted from rins's twitter it's not because he's expressing any remorse it's because he's, he's got his wrist slapped for giving away the exclusive because i've just got notification to say it's now available to watch behind the paywall on motogp.com <laughs> 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 money makes the world <laughs> yeah let's move on uh, the, the, just coming back to the whole stewards thing um, you know, riders, engineers, team principals, arguably journalists, when we're looking at races, qualifying practice, we're data driven. It's binary. You either do a one minute 42 or you do a one minute 41.9. You're either on pole or you're second or third or whatever. And the trouble with stewards decisions is they're qualitative, not quantitative. Um, the best steward I've come across was poor old Charlie Whiting in Formula One because he had that air of, I've done this for 45 years and he didn't shout, he wasn't an arm waver, he didn't do a windmill impression and everybody respected him. And it's really difficult to find somebody who's been doing it for 45 years who doesn't lose their temper and everybody's got respect for. It's so, it doesn't matter what the sport is, it's difficult. But this, this, maybe this is why it seems like the level of MotoGP stewarding has taken a massive drop lately is because they had that person in Mike Webb and they replaced him with an outsider with Freddie Spencer. And Freddie's attitude just rubs riders up the wrong way. Um, I know someone who, uh, Ayumi Sasaki, had an incident where he got sent to the back of the grid at Hareth. He went to race control with Max Biaggi, his team boss. Got to respect somebody. You got you got to respect Max when he walks through the door. Sorry. Whatever you think of him, you got yeah. to respect him. They, they very respectfully they very respectfully didn't understand why they'd been penalised, why Sasaki had been penalised. And they simply asked how not to be penalised in future should the same circumstances arise. And Spencer shrugged his shoulders and walked out of the room. Ah, oh, that's the wrong answer. And, and that's not the right answer that's not something that's productive and and you know i i still don't understand why race director mike webb was taking out of his jordan role because mike 
as you will know from your experience working with him, Toby, is the calmest man. He's the politest man. He's super well respected in the paddock. But he, he's an ex-crew chief. He he came to Grand Prix racing as Simon Crayfire's crew chief, their, their fellow Kiwis. Yeah, and he yeah. came with Simon. So he, he's got an engineer's brain. And he's very good and detailed at explaining things. And it's it's quite funny now, even now, when he doesn't have a stewarding role, that whenever they need to put someone on camera to explain things that the stewards have done, it's not Freddie Spencer, it's Mike Webb. Yeah. That, that's quite telling. Yeah. Which, to be fair, I've noticed some of that. I've noticed some of that in, in, in F1 too, because obviously the race director role and the steward role are, you know, there's supposed to be a separation of state and state, if you like. But... Also, that has happened in F1 that the, the race director was sort of the face for all of the decisions and the stewards were quite shielded, which is, I think, deliberate, but so that they can just get on with it. But at the same time, what, what Simon has long been talking about and what I completely agree with is you really want somebody in there with a legalese background who writes out really long, really detailed decisions and sends them out. You, you want someone super boring, not someone super fast. Yeah, but That's great. And, and, and just to finish up, because we've got to move on, you know, what Charlie Whiting had was he he was a mechanic. He was a mechanic at Brabham with Bernie in the seventies, and da, 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 da. so he had exactly what you touched on with Mike Webb. Mike Webb engineered Neil Hodgson to a pole position at Argentina in ninety five. You know all those kind of things. He 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 was he was there. He was at Yamaha. So yeah, anyway. right right now our our stewarding panel is an, a former airline pilot. Uh a former Grand Prix winner from 40 years ago and a, another who rotates through. You know, if you were putting together your dreams during panel, it would be like Mike Webb, Casey Stoner and Jeremy Burgess. You'd have the super experienced crew chief, the, the, the recent experienced writer with a calm head and the guy who's there making the calls. But it, it, it wouldn't be, oh, or, and or you'd throw in a lawyer or a judge, retired judge who likes motorsport. Not what we've got right now. Yeah. Um, Mugello, it's got a 1.1 kilometre long home straight. There was a bit of a slipstream, but Jorge Martin on one of the Pramac Ducatis did 363.6 kilometres an hour. That's 225.9 miles an hour during the race. A new race record for MotoGP. Um, the, I won't say slowest, but the least fastest was Raul Fernandez throughout the weekend on one of the Tech 3 KTMs, just at 347 kilometres an hour. That's only 10 miles an hour slower or about 16 and a half kilometres an hour slower. That's quick. It is very, very quick. But just to, to sort of put into context, Mugello quick versus everywhere else quick. Uh, I don't know how far down the the average speed from the event chart she looked, Toby. But if you look down at it, I think you'll find that Darren Bender in a one-year-old Yamaha's third, which is quite remarkable, actually. And that just shows that it's taken from your best five laps of the, the weekend, the fastest five laps of the weekend. And, and obviously... Over all three days. Yeah. Yep. And obviously yep. Darren has spent five laps in the slipstream of two Ducatis. Uh, and that's reflected in the speed chart. Oh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you know, we we spoke to Jorge Martin about it earlier in the race, and he straight up said like his that lap, that new record happened very early on in the race when he was getting drafted by like fifteen riders. Um, and it is the nature of Mugello to an extent, but it takes nothing away from the fact that it is bloody fast. 
200 and essentially 26 miles an hour. Uh, that's 364 kilometers an hour, wherever you are in the world. I mean, hell on earth. That's quick. <laughs> I was trying to work out how far, I was trying to work out how far I could get to Mugello at that speed. <laughs> it would be about four hours. <laughs> But I think I'd run out of fuel. But, yeah, yeah. but MotoGP bikes can go faster. And we, we may have a little um, something in the pipeline to try and figure out what that is. That's all I'm saying. Ooh. Okay, then. Right. Ooh. We shall find out. We shall find out. Uh, talking about Max Biaggi. We're developing a new engine for Yamaha. <laughs> That's why Fabio is resigning. Yeah, well, we're giving special dispensation, special dispensation to become a 1200. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, let's go down in engine size, shall we? Actually, just before we go any further, at a, at a slightly serious point to throw it in there, um, there, there's only going to be two inline four engines on the grid next year. Mm. Yamaha gonna be staying with their factory team, and the the with you team will 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 not be Yamaha. So as well Suzuki, hmm. Suzuki are disappearing as well. Mm. Which is quite remarkable, actually. But there you go. Very surprising. Very surprising. Uh, going down a size in engine, Max Biaggi was inducted to the MotoGP legend, Hall of Fame, call it what you will, the four-time 250cc world champion from 94, 95, 96 with the Chesterfield Aprilia, and then 97 with the Marlboro NSR 250. Uh, he won Mugello in 1997. I was there that day. He shouldn't have won it. He should not have won. It was the one race of all the races of 350-odd that I went to that nobody should... He should not have won that race with three or four works Aprilia's. There was a wild card Aprilia with Marcellino Lucchi, who in those days went round Mugello until it was dark and there was a groove in it. Um, and he won it literally at the last corner. Unbelievable. Um, but more impressive. And people have maybe forgotten this, so just give me a minute. In 1998, he went into the 500cc class. He jumped on a uh, an NSR 500 Honda. It was Marlboro. It was run by Team Kanemoto. It was an HRC bike in a different colour scheme. We know that. But he went out and he won his first race in, in the class, full stop. Uh, you know, Casey did that. Um, Danny Pedrosa took four races. Mark took three races. Marquez did three races. But he took the title chase in 1998 to Mick Doohan with only a handful of races to go before it all started to fall apart at Barcelona, which in those days was in the, in the September. Uh, everybody had an argument with Max at one point or another. He called his team gypsies at Assen one year, I remember, because he came into the pits with about a minute and a half to go with qualifying and said, change a tyre. And then when he went out, he suddenly discovered that there wasn't enough time for an outlap. And when he came round, there was a chequered flag and he called them gypsies. He, we, he and I had a stand-up argument in the Marlborough Hospitality that day. There was another time, and I can't remember when, was it 02 or 03? So it was still Marlborough Yamaha four-stroke days that he was on. And I had seen Lynn Jarvis in the morning on Sunday and I went to the commentary box and I said something. I can't remember what it was and it was to do with Max, but it had come from Lynn Jarvis for crying out loud. So I said it on air and Max came into the commentary box about an hour later. The commentary box, it's about 400, no, 300 metres from the paddock and you've got to go out the paddock and into the public area and up the stairs and along the lift and up the other set of... The, and the commentary box... 
And we were mid-race, 250s or 125 or something or other, and I flicked him out. Everybody had an argument with him, but everybody then made friends with him. And it was so cool to see that Chesterfield Aprilia back out again. It sounded crisp. It reminds me of, you know, I was interviewing Neil Hodgson, I think, last year, and he recalled a run-in with Biaggi in Brno or something like that, where I believe he may have maybe slapped Biaggi or something like that. The the interesting part of the story is that apparently there were people in the paddock who were telling him they you know they'd pay his fine for that. <laughs> if, I'm not sure if he did slap him or or just threatened. I'm not sure. It was to do with the last corner, and Max was messing about, and Neil came round that last sweeping right in Bruno. And Neil was on the grass and it was like one of those squeaky bun moments and it was like, oh, I'm, I'm not just going to go to hospital, I'm going to be out for a year here kind of accident. And yeah, you remind me, Val, I'd forgotten about that. But Neil told me one 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 evening over dinner and he was furious. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Max Biaggi, uh, a MotoGP legend. Uh, other news since we all last spoke is that the Finnish Grand Prix which was to take place in July, has been postponed. Homologation works at the Kimi Ring going on. Risks caused by the ongoing geopolitical situation in that part of the world have obliged for the cancellation of that Finnish Grand Prix. So MotoGP looks forward to seeing the Finnish Grand Prix in 2023. Simon's making a face. Simon's, there's a face going on. Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to Finland. I don't think it's ever going to happen. I, I that's my vibe. Um, I know the statement says one thing, but yeah, your genuine vibes of um this being a convenient excuse for the fact that the track still isn't ready after two years of COVID, where it should have been finished, and all sorts of rumors coming out about infighting among uh, the financial backers, the local government pulling out of the project. It it doesn't sound doesn't sound very good to be frank. Okay, so something's up there. Something's up there. Uh, I was just trotting out what we all read during the week. So uh, and you could hear that in my voice. Yeah, just just adding the paddock. Uh, you know <laughs> the undertones. Scuttlebutt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now uh, last time out, if you want to go back in your podcast menu, we did a an hour uh, with your questions that uh, everybody had had sent in uh, voice mails that have been emailed into podcasts at the-race.com podcasts at the-race.com and we went through as i said a few last week and we've got one this week from rory from cardiff hi guys rory from cardiff um quick question uh, about uh, the honda front end which seems to be incredibly different uh, this year certainly with um uh in terms of uh, the way it uh works going into the corners certainly at hard braking um has this uh, been symptomatic of the um, wholesale change that honda have made going through um uh, ripping everything out and starting again or is this something that they're going to be able to change certainly the behavior in the corners seems to be a lot less aggressive which um, should help them corner, but seems to uh, make the front end almost feel like it's floating at times. I'm not technically minded, but I find it quite interesting that uh, corner speed doesn't seem to be as high as uh, what it 
maybe should be with the evolution and the steps that they've made with this bike so be interested to see what you guys think okay thank you rory uh quite a long question uh obviously we're not in the depths of the honda garage we're not uh, santi hernandez but i know exactly where you're coming from and i can i can uh, i can i can see where you've got the thought process for that question um i suppose can i go to you simon uh, yeah they've tried to make it a little bit user-friendly and change the front and whatever but i'm wary of of going too deep on it what maybe you've got a bit more angle i i think they've done a little bit but it it, it more and more as the year goes on and as we get to more and more tracks it sounds like they've kind of done the bare minimum to appease Paul Espagaro and given him a little bit more rear grip while still building a bike that is quite Mark Marquez focused um, I think it, it hasn't actually changed that much and what we're seeing is that Paul's not still not really able to ride the bike consistently the way he wants to um, it's better it's definitely better um, it's it's a, a bit more you don't need to be so aggressive with the front end as you need it to be um, but it's it's <laughs> It's like you said, Toby, earlier in the podcast. They're they're just waiting on Mark coming back, and and I don't know what. Well, I don't know if if they're in any hurry to change it. Not just because they're waiting on Mark to come back, but because the rumors are that that you know their Paul's replacement next year is going to be Schwan Mir, who is going to appreciate a Mark Marquez style bike a lot more than a Jorge Marti or a, 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 a Paul Espargaro bike. So, I I think it's not that different is the point I'm trying to make. It's not actually that different. It's not as different as we thought it was. I mean, yeah, the, the Honda boys that, you know, that we've heard from, like a lot of them, like the Alex Marquez line was basically that it's, it's completely from scratch, but the results are very similar, unfortunately for Alex. And also I would say for, for Taka, like it must be pretty far away from the bike that Taka was really good on back in, back in 20. So the, the 19 Honda, but it's not really. It's not like it's shaken up the Honda status quo so much. It's maybe brought the tr- the trio a little bit closer to Mark, but only in the sense that Mark has been reined back a little bit while he learns it. Uh, but it's you know it's it's hard to say. Just the the best info I have is the lap times that are not very good and the feedback from the riders that's a, a little bit all over the place. They don't really trust the front. I think sooner or later there will be guys who who do trust the front on that bike and the bike will will be better because it's it's newish. So I think it will it will evolve. Uh and I, you know, in terms of engineering, I've never built a MotoGP bike so I I couldn't tell you if you could do a really good one <laughs> with a really good responsive front end and a really good responsive rear end, but yeah, there's smarter people out there trying right now and I'm not sure anybody in MotoGP has really quite managed to to achieve a perfect balance of those uh well if you ask some of the guys april you have yeah all right so basically they will poach romano albisiano you heard it here first (laughs) yeah a a difficult one because we're not completely tech-minded but uh, there's a lot of very clever people at hrc and uh, they will be doing all they can to uh, to sort that out rory okay uh, next up catalonia at the circuit of montmelo back-to-back grand prix so it's a road trip for the paddock from tuscany all the way around the uh, south of france to barcelona it's 
just about 1,100 kilometres. Eight Grand Prix down, 13 to go. Keep in touch with all of the Formula One and MotoGP news with the-race.com through our big website. So then, it remains for Val, Simon and myself, Toby, to say thank you for tuning in and speak to you next week. Cevdiamo. 12 to go, no Finland. So we're, you know, big summer break. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.